In a New York Times interview column, journalist Nicholas Kristof says, I deeply admire Jesus and his message, but I'm also skeptical of the resurrection. He asks this question, is that an essential belief? Decades earlier in the 1950s, a theologian by the name of Rudolf Boltmann said that we should demythologize the Bible, meaning that we should strip away the miraculous and supernatural aspects of Scripture and really hold on to the ethical teachings that it contains. And maybe that resonates. Maybe you wonder, does belief in Jesus' historical resurrection really matter? Can we admire the teachings of Jesus without having to accept the resurrection? Scholar N.T. Wright observes that there is no form of early Christianity known to us that does not affirm Jesus' death on the cross and that he was raised again to life. And when you look back at the early adherents of Christianity, you discover that the resurrection really lies at the heart of the Christian faith. Christianity, says Wright, isn't a set of ideas. It isn't a path of spirituality. It isn't a rule of life. It isn't a political agenda. It includes and indeed gives energy to all those things, but at its very heart, it is something different. It is good news about an event which has happened in the world, an event because of which the world can never be the same again. And those who believe it and live by it will, thank God, never be the same again either. Christianity is good news about an event which has happened in the world because of which the world can never be the same again. The Christian faith is a resurrection religion. It, it, it's, it is fundamental to being a Christian the way not eating meat is, is fundamental to being a vegetarian. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul deals with this topic of the resurrection. It's actually the longest treatise on the resurrection in the New Testament. And in this passage of Scripture that Miss Luann just read a portion of, in this passage, Paul deals with the questions of why it really matters, why it's credible, and what it actually means if it's true. And so this morning, I want us to consider Paul's assertion about the resurrection. I want us to look at Paul's arguments for the resurrection. And then finally, Paul's appeal to root your hope in the resurrection. Let's look at these one at a time. Let's first look at Paul's assertion. Here's Paul's assertion. His assertion is this, the Christian faith rises or falls by the resurrection. The Christian faith rises or falls by the resurrection. In the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is writing a letter to a young church full of issues. It's a young church that is full of issues. There's all kinds of stuff going on in Corinth. There's, there's issues of competing factions within the church. There's sexual immorality that's rampant in the church. There's, there's pride in the church. There are all of these issues in the church. And so Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to begin to try to address these issues. But 
finally, in chapter 15, he gets to this issue of the resurrection. And it's the last thing that he addresses because to Paul, it's the most important. And what Paul essentially says is that the Christian faith lives or dies by this doctrine. He he begins chapter 15 by reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached to them. He says, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the message, the message of first importance that I preached to you when I came to Corinth, that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and that on the third day he was raised. This is what we call the gospel. It's the good news that God loved the world and sent his son to be the savior of the world, that Jesus, the son of God, took on flesh and became one of us, that he lived a a fully obedient life unto death, that he willingly offered his life up as an atoning sacrifice for sins, and that he was put in the grave on a Friday evening, that he was raised to life on a Sunday morning. And Paul says, this message, if you believe it, if you put your trust in it, has the power to save you. But then he goes on to show that if the resurrection isn't really true, if it's not historically true that Jesus got up out of that grave, he says several things. First, he says, he says, preaching is powerless. We believe something more than emotional appeal and rhetorical arguments are happening when we proclaim the gospel. What makes sense of this very moment, what makes sense of Christian preaching is that Jesus is truly alive, that the message is true, and that his spirit is actively at work among us this very moment to work in our hearts, to help us believe. If Jesus isn't alive, there is zero power in preaching. This is nothing more than a middle school pep rally. We're wasting our time. No offense to you middle school teachers. But Paul says not only is preaching powerless, he says faith is worthless. Especially where I come from, I'm from the south. It's popular to have these little wooden cutouts up in your home on your mantle. Maybe you've seen them before, maybe you have, maybe they've made their way to the heartland. And the most popular of these wooden cutouts is the word faith. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with having the word faith up in your home. But Paul is making a distinction here. Because what he's saying is that it's not faith in general that is effective in your life. The question is the object of your faith. What is your faith in? And what Paul is saying in this passage is that if your faith is in a dead rabbi, your faith is worthless. If Jesus isn't alive, if he didn't truly rise from the grave, no amount of your faith matters. It's not the amount of your faith. It's not the intensity of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith that matters. Paul says if Christ isn't truly raised, preaching is pointless and faith is worthless. And thirdly, he says Christians are pitiful. At least in certain sectors of the United States, there's still some level of social capital that comes with being a Christian. This is going away, but it's still present in certain arenas. And at a minimum, you can be a Christian in the United States and for the most part, retain respect. 
Even in, say, specialized scientific fields, there there are well-respected Christians who hold high positions in those fields. But in the first century, there was no cultural advantage to being a follower of Jesus. It was just the opposite. Christians were regularly persecuted. They were regularly ostracized. They were regularly excluded. There was a real and a significant cost to claiming faith in Jesus. And so what Paul is saying in this passage of scripture is that the advantage to the Christian faith is what happens in death and in the afterlife. And so he says, if there's no resurrection, then Christians suffering for their faith are left hopeless and deserving of pity. Paul is saying here that the Christian faith is more than a made-up story to give us an existential sense of purpose and meaning. Paul's assertion here is that it's a religion rooted in an historical event. Either Jesus rose bodily from the dead or he didn't. And Paul says, if he didn't, then let's not waste our time. Verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Wright says to this, the resurrection is rock bottom reality for the Christian. The only point in being a Christian at all is if this message continues to be the solid ground on which you stand. Now let's pause for a second and consider, why is Paul having to make this sort of an argument? I mean, Paul is making a a skilled rhetorical argument for the resurrection, but why? It's because only about 20 years after Jesus' death, there were already people in the first century denying the resurrection story within the church. Let's not be guilty of what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, which is the assumption that we're intellectually higher and less gullible than those ancients in the first century. Maybe you're inclined to assume that everyone in the first century just naturally accepted the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead. If you think that, you're wrong. Paul is writing this letter in part because people were saying there is no resurrection from the dead. It was a difficult idea for the Corinthians just as much as it was a diff- it's a difficult idea for us. And so to be clear, no one was anticipating that Jesus would bodily rise from the dead, not even his own disciples. In the first century, there were two dominant worldviews in place. There was the Greek worldview, and the Greeks believed in the spiritual realm. They believed that the spiritual realm was good, but, but that the physical world, the material world, was corrupted. And so this idea of salvation was to be liberated from the physical. And so the the idea of God putting on flesh or or God being liberated from flesh in death only to re-enter a body and be raised from the dead was unconscionable. It was unthinkable to the Greeks. In Jewish thought, there, there wasn't the same negative view of the physical world But the idea of a crucified Messiah was unfathomable. The Jews anticipated a resurrection of the righteous at the very end of the age. But an individual being raised from the dead in the middle of history, while the world continued on in its present state, 
was unheard of. And so what we need to see, church, is that while their beliefs and values may have been a little different than ours, they would have been just as skeptical of a bodily resurrection as our modern world, which is why, is Paul, why Paul is having to, to defend this claim. It's why he's having to deal with this re- rejection of the resurrection. And what he insists is that not only is the resurrection a core belief, it's a critical belief. That the whole system rises or falls here. And so what is Paul's argument for the resurrection? Why should we believe it? Let's notice, secondly, Paul's argument. Paul's argument is this. Christian belief in the resurrection rests on credible testimony. It rests on credible testimony. In verses 3 through 8, Paul appeals to two different types of testimonies for the validity of the resurrection. He gives a scriptural testimony, and then he gives an eyewitness testimony. As he recounts the gospel story, I want you to notice how Paul twice adds the phrase, according to the scriptures. Paul could have just simply said, Christ died for our sins. He was buried on the third day he was raised. But, but he adds this little phrase, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Why, why does he keep adding that phrase? Because Paul wants to be clear that the death and resurrection of Jesus was prophesied and predicted in the Old Testament. Remember, the scriptures for Paul are what we refer to as the Old Testament. In our Bibles, Genesis through Malachi. In the Hebrew order, Genesis through 2 Chronicles. And Paul says that the Old Testament has been pointing to the death and resurrection of the Messiah the whole time. Now, we don't know if Paul has one particular passage in mind, but he could have been thinking of a text such as Isaiah 53, which Pastor Jonathan referenced earlier. The prophet Isaiah lived 700 years before the birth of Jesus. Isaiah was living in a time when the people of Judah were in rebellion. They were on the brink of getting overtaken by a Babylonian army. And so much of Isaiah's ministry was trying to call the people back into faithfulness, warning them that if they don't repent, they're going to be taken into exile. But in the later prophecies of Isaiah, he begins to speak of this suffering servant, this one who will suffer on behalf of the people and bear their iniquity for them so that they can be forgiven, so that their rebellion can be pardoned and they can be brought back to God. Isaiah prophesies of the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like some people turned away from him. He was despised and we didn't value him, yet he himself bore our sickness and carried our pains. He was pierced because of our rebellion. He was crushed because of our iniquities. We all went astray like sheep. We all have turned to our own way and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. What is fascinating about this passage of scripture is that no one associated this passage with the Messiah until after Jesus' resurrection. Because of their theological biases, no Israelite could imagine a suffering Messiah. 
And yet it was here the whole time. And when Jesus rose from the dead, it suddenly made sense. Jesus was the cipher to the whole prophecy. The Bible which Paul had known and loved as a young man was like a story in search of an ending. And when Jesus rose from the dead, the ending was now revealed. This is where it was all going the whole time. We have an account in the New Testament. We actually referenced it on Thursday, so I won't, I won't read the whole thing. But the, the story is, is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And there are these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And they're walking and they're discussing the, the recent events of Jesus' crucifixion. And they're sad. They're sad because they had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. They had hoped that he was the Messiah. But again, they had no framework for a crucified Messiah. And Jesus conceals his identity and approaches these two disciples having this conversation and asks them what they're talking about. And when they tell him, Jesus gently rebukes them. He says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that was spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into glory? And it says, then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. That's Jesus' way of saying the whole book, the whole Old Testament. He interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Jesus says the whole book's about me. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it, Every story whispers his name. He's on every page. In John 5, 39, Jesus rebuked the religious leaders, saying to them, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them, and yet they testify about me. And what Jesus is saying is, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Some of y'all are too young for this, which is weird for me to say, because I don't feel that old, but I'm old. Some of y'all don't remember this, but you got, some of y'all will, those magic eye illusion books. You'd stare at those things until the image finally popped out. But once it popped out, you could get there quick and you couldn't unsee it. And Jesus is saying, that is the Old Testament. That's me. Once you see it, you can't unsee it. And that's what Paul is saying in this passage, that, that, that these events, his, his death and resurrection were predicted. They were prophesied. There's a scriptural testimony. And then beside that, Jesus, or Paul rather, says that there is an eyewitness testimony. Jesus' resurrection didn't happen in secret. If there had only been an empty tomb and no sightings, no one would have concluded it was a resurrection. A secret disappearance doesn't lead to a revolution. But Paul's claim is that Jesus was buried in a particular tomb, Joseph of Arimathea's. That his body was no longer in that tomb. And that subsequently, at different times and in different locations, Jesus appeared to various individuals over a period of 40 days. Have you ever read 1 Corinthians 15 and wondered, why is Paul going to such great lengths to put these names in here? Cephas, that's Peter to the 12, to 500 brothers and sisters at one time. One of the arguments, by the way, against the resurrection is that people were hallucinating when they saw the risen Christ. 
Can we all just agree that 500 people don't hallucinate the same image at the same time? He appeared to James, again to the 12. And then Paul says, finally, as one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why does Paul list names? Because many of these people were still alive when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. This is only a few years removed from the resurrection. In other words, if you don't believe me, you can go track one of them down. And you can ask them if they saw the risen Christ. And they'll tell you and they can recount their testimony. Three of these names are particularly interesting to me when you consider their eventual deaths. Cephas or Peter, according to tradition, was crucified upside down for his witness to Jesus. James was martyred by stoning. And Paul, well, Paul gives us an account of his hardships in the book of 2 Corinthians. Five times I received the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I received a stoning, he survived a stoning. Three times I was shipwrecked. I've spent a night and a day in the open sea on frequent journeys. I faced dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea and dangers among false brothers, toil and hardship, many sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, often without food, cold and without clothing. Not to mention the other things. Paul says, that's not it. It's not even an exhaustive list. And then he adds this at the end. And then there's the daily pressure on me. My concern for all the churches. Hey, Paul didn't get into apostolic ministry because it was an easy gig that paid well. And by the way, what's not recorded here because Paul was still alive when he recorded this was that he was eventually martyred for his faith as well. So you not only have eyewitnesses, but eyewitnesses willing to die for what they claim to have seen. Pastor Tim Keller concludes, it is not enough for the skeptic then to simply dismiss the Christian teaching about the resurrection of Jesus by saying, it just couldn't have happened. He or she must face and answer all these historical questions. Why did Christianity emerge so rapidly with such power? No group of Jews ever worshiped a human being as God. What led them to do it? How do you account for the hundreds of eyewitnesses to the resurrection who lived on for decades and publicly maintained their testimony, eventually giving their lives for their belief? We have to presume it's because they really believed it to be true. And when you add to that scripture's testimony that long before it ever happened, God called his shot, so to speak. You can't simply dismiss the resurrection as a myth or a fable. You have to consider it. You have to consider it. That's my appeal to you this morning. If you struggle with this, you consider it. And on top of that, don't you want it to be true? It was actually this sort of thinking that led C.S. Lewis to open himself up to the gospel. As a youth, Lewis really enjoyed the poetry of William Morris. 
And in a letter to his friend, Arthur Greaves, Lewis describes the world of Morris's poetry as hauntingly beautiful lands which somehow never satisfy. Morris could depict these beautiful realities that flirted with this theme of the afterlife, but Morris himself didn't believe in God. Nonetheless, Lewis says that his poetry created a desire within him that opened him up to the possibility of such a world being real. In Lewis's words, Morris faced him, forced him rather, to go further. Lewis would, would later reflect, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Friends, listen, a, a naturalistic view of the world can't account for our belief in human values or our sense of purpose. Atheist Frederick Nietzsche argued that most secular people behave as covert Christians because they believe in human rights and caring for the poor, even though these have no real place in a completely materialistic universe. It requires a leap of faith to hold to human values from a secular worldview. If you believe in them, but you don't believe in God, maybe you should go further. Here's my hunch. My hunch is that everyone in this room would assent to the idea that people have value, that life matters. You want to do good. You want your life to count for something. You believe that there's purpose in the world. You believe in beauty. You believe in love. You believe in goodness because you've experienced these things. Deep down in your soul, you've experienced them. Where did that come from? Perhaps you should recognize with Lewis that you were made for another world. This is Paul's appeal at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. He's telling us to go further. Go further. Recognize that your deepest longings are fulfilled in the resurrection. Right now, we live in a world of brokenness. In the past few weeks, we've watched tornadoes rip through the towns of North Little Rock and Rolling Fork in Amory, Mississippi. We've watched in horror about another school shooting taking the lives of three students and three faculty. War still rages in Ukraine. There's so much tragedy in our world, not even to mention the daily battles each of us face. And, and sometimes the sadness of life can be overwhelming. Where do we turn in times like these? Where do we go to find hope in a natural disaster or a cancer diagnosis or the death of a child or in deep depression? Paul points us to the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection, Paul says in verse 20, is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
When a tree is planted, you, you don't know that it's going to actually bear fruit. Sometimes it can be a diseased plant that never gives a yield. And even if it's a good plant, there's a waiting period. Sometimes it takes years for that plant to produce a crop. But that first fruit on the tree, it's a relief. It's a relief that the tree is healthy. And it's a promise and a symbol of more to come. Paul says that Christ's resurrection is a first fruit. That what happened with him will eventually happen for those united to him by faith. In our current age of corruption and longing, we might wonder if spring is ever gonna come. I know as a Southern boy living in the heartland, it's been cold. And I've wondered, is spring ever gonna come? We wonder if the fruit of hope is ever going to arrive. But if Jesus truly rose from the dead, then it is a signpost of the undoing of the curse of the world. And what it means is that slowly and subtly, but surely the world is moving in reverse and, will one, and one day all corruption of sin will come undone. Even death, Paul says, will be no more. Verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. And he goes on and he says, for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility. And this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is arguing very simply is this. I want you to feel this deep down in your bones. If the resurrection is true, then everything sad will come untrue. If the resurrection is true, then we can flip the script on what Paul said earlier. Then let us eat and drink and be merry because hope is real. And because it is true, we who believe it will never be the same again. Faith in Jesus, in his life for us, in his death in our place, and in his resurrection from the dead changes everything. It means that we can live with the assurance that the last word is not corruption and dishonor, but wholeness and glory. It means that ultimately all things work together for good. It means that death will give way to life. 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. The good news 
of this message of the resurrection is that the power of the resurrection is not completely deferred to the afterlife. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, new life can begin even here in the, in the here and now. We can experience the first fruits of life change here in the present. Faith in Jesus doesn't suddenly make everything perfect. But it means you can live with his presence inside of you. It means you can live with hope. It means newfound peace and purpose in Christ and a pledge of a whole lot more to come in the hereafter. Christ has died for our sins. He was buried. He has risen from the grave. And Christ will come again. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, because you're alive, we grab hold of the promise that everything sad will come untrue. That you've actually already begun that work. That you are reversing the curse. You're making all things new. We believe it, Jesus. Help us when we struggle to believe. I pray for those in the room maybe who are struggling to believe this for the very first time. May your spirit convince them that you're alive, that you're the king, that you're worthy of our trust and our hope, that you're coming again to usher in the consummation of your kingdom. Jesus, we long for it. In this world of brokenness, we long for your kingdom to come more fully. We long for it to come completely. Keep us trusting in you. Keep us hoping in the promise of your resurrection like the first fruit on a tree. We pray this in your strong name, amen.